thank you for welcoming us into your home. I hope you have been blessed by the praise, by the prayers. And now as God's people, we're going to gather together and study his word. So I want to invite you to get your Bible. And we're going to turn to Psalm 145 today. If you're joining us for the first time, we're taking a break from our study of Thessalonians to talk about psalms for a time like this. So we're looking at some psalms that are going to help us as we face this coronavirus. And I do want to ask you to continue to pray. Be in prayer. I just heard of a pastor and his wife who both have coronavirus up in Massachusetts. They lost their special needs child to the coronavirus. So it's bad. But in the midst of all that, what the Lord, I believe, has given me to share with you today is actually... We mustn't forget during times like this that it's still our privilege to give praise and thanks to God. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, you remember, actually says, in everything give thanks, rejoice evermore and pray without ceasing. So even though there are a lot of things we don't understand, a lot of sorrow, we looked at a lament psalm last week where we can cry out to God. But this morning... We're going to look at a passage, and I want to encourage you to get your pen because we're going to look at some Hebrew words and get in depth here, maybe take some notes and outline. And remember, you young people can be taking some epic sermon notes. But we're going to look at a psalm of praise. And what I want you to see with me this morning is that this psalm is going to instruct us in how to praise God. It's going to teach us when to praise God and what are some subjects that should occupy our praise. So the first thing we're going to note is in the first two verses, King David tells us, as believers, we should praise our God daily forever. We should praise our God daily forever. We're going to make up our mind that every day forever, we're going to praise God. Look with me in verses 1 and 2. David says, I will extol you, my God, O King, and I will bless your name forever and ever. Every day I will bless you, and I will praise your name forever and ever. So we're going to learn that, that it's God's will that every day we rejoice, we bless him, we praise him. But what I find interesting in this introduction is that David does not yet tell us why he's going to praise God. He doesn't tell us anything except this. We get a hint by what he calls God. I will extol you, which means to exalt or lift you up. I will lift you up, O God, my king, my king. And so what we're going to find is that this psalm celebrates a number of things about God, but one of the primary emphasis is his kingship. Now, it's kind of interesting when you think about it because, number one, we don't live in a country that has a king like the Brits. But think about King David. David had some experience kinging. He knew what it's like to be a king. He knew that a king's job was to protect his people, provide for his people, sustain his people. Keep his people. And so David hints to us that he's going to teach us to praise God, particularly for God as our king. 
But having started off with praising God daily forever, now I want you to look with me in verses three through seven. The first thing we're gonna learn about praise here is that we should praise God for his works of power. We should praise God for his works of power. Now what I want you to pay attention to in verses three through seven is number one, how often it mentions these acts or works of power. And ask yourself, what is he talking about here? Great is the Lord and highly to be praised. In fact, his greatness is unsearchable. We could never fully understand it. And then he elaborates on that greatness. One generation shall praise your works to another. They shall declare your mighty acts. On the glorious splendor of your majesty and on your wonderful works, I will meditate. And men shall speak of the power of your awesome acts. And I will tell of your greatness. They shall eagerly utter the memory of your abundant goodness and shall shout joyfully of your righteousness. Let's take a look at this. The first thing I want you to note here is, is all of the words that involve either telling or rehearsing or communicating God's works. Notice that he says, one generation, verse four, shall declare your acts. In verse six, he says, men shall speak of your power. He says, I will tell of your greatness. In verse seven, he says, they eagerly utter, they shout joyfully. In fact, I was kind of pleasantly surprised in verse five, at the end of verse five in the New American Standard, it says, on your wonderful works, I will meditate. And I thought, well, it's not just works. But actually, I, I looked that Hebrew word up, and that Hebrew word, while it can be translated meditate, it can also be translated as talk. In fact, the King James actually translates it, I will talk of your works. And so the first thing that, that, that we just want to think about is God wants us to be talking about his works of power. He wants us to be rehearsing them. So a couple things that stood out to me here. Look in verse seven. He says, they eagerly utter the memory of your abundant goodness. Sometimes it's fun to do a word study. That word translated eagerly utter is actually a word that comes from a, a root that means to pour or gush forth. The noun form of this word, nabah, has to do with a spring of water. And so, he says, men's mouths, like a spring of water, shall just gush forth and speak of these wonderful, awesome acts. There's this uninterrupted volume of information about God and his great works of power. In fact, this is the same word that's used in Psalm 19 when it tells us that the heavens do this. The heavens declare the glory of God but the word that's used in there, it later says they utter God's work. 
So they're constantly pouring forth communication about God's greatness. So, so, so what we're learning here is, is that we need to talk about God's power. But secondly, there's, there's another thing that's neat is not only do we praise God for his works of power by, by talking about them, but we need to teach them to our kids. Look at verse four. He says, one generation shall praise your works to another. Well, wait a minute. So what we learn here is that we are to transfer our praise to our kids. Now, think about this. He keeps saying, you and I should be talking regularly. Our mouths should be overflowing, talking about God's works, about God's acts, about his displays of his power. I want you to get thinking about that. What's he talking about here? That, that as a parent or a grandparent, I need to regularly be telling my children. In fact, it's very interesting. The word declare in verse four, when it says one generation shall declare your mighty acts. That word declare is a word that has a mathematical connotation. It has the idea of instructing and, and transmitting information. In fact, the Hebrew dictionary said this, fathers are to instruct their children on the primacy of God in their life and his mighty wonders in the world. Here's an interesting cross-reference. Psalm 78 verse four says this, God, we will not conceal your works from our children, but we will tell to the generation to come the praises of the Lord. You ready? We will tell them his strength and the wondrous works that he has done. So God just gave you a parenting tip. He said, you and I need to teach our kids, our grandkids, and the next generation the wonderful works of God. So then I, I thought about this. Hmm. You know, it's interesting because what are our kids being taught in public school today? I've noticed that there's been a great shift in, in, in young people's view of politics, and some people believe it's because they're not being taught civics. They're not being taught American history. They're not being taught certain things. Information is being withheld from them. But you know, as a Christian parent, regardless of whether you're in favor of public school or not, what's more important is not just that our kids aren't being taught politics, but what should concern us more is that our kids are not being taught God's powerful works. But now I have a, a task for you. What must these things be that Paul says we must, or, 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 or David says, we must talk about God's mighty acts. We must declare his works. We must declare his awesome acts. So at this point, I want you to take a moment and ask yourself, what would you say is your top 10 list of God's powerful acts? If you were to sit down with your kids and say, guys, I wanna tell you some of the greatest things that God has ever done. Let me, just, let me just start right here. First of all, if you'd like, maybe you can pause right now if you're with your kids or, or with your family 
even if it's a husband and wife, just stop and think about what you know about the Bible and ask yourself, what are some of the primary awesome acts of God that we need to keep talking about and sharing with our kids? Take a moment and, and, and see how many you can come up with. Can you come up with 10? Well, let me suggest a few from the scriptures. First of all, we should be talking about God's act of creation. Don't get over that. The Bible makes a big deal how God spoke and this powerful universe was slung into space. Hebrews 11 says, by faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God so that what exists came into being out of nothing. Ex nihilo, God's powerful work of creation when he, when he slung forth the stars and called them all by name, when, when he brought the mountains up out of the deep. Tell that to your kids. Rehearse it. Think about it. And then secondly, what about the flood? We need to teach our children about this great flood, which I personally believe was a worldwide global flood in which only eight souls on planet Earth were preserved. In fact, 2 Peter chapter 3 rebukes mockers, and, and, and Peter says this, they are willfully ignorant. They forget that years ago the Earth was destroyed with a flood. We need to remind our children that this world was once covered with a flood. And if you don't believe it, go on to Answers in Genesis and look at some of the evidences they give, like fossils of fish that are found on the tops of mountains. A wonderful thing to talk about. The psalmist said in Psalm 29, the Lord sat as king at the flood. The Lord sits as king forever. And then, of course, God's great covenant with Abraham and his creation of the nation of Israel. We should rehearse that with our kids. Of all the pagan nations on planet Earth, God found Abraham in his sovereign grace and called him. And he formed out of Abraham this covenant people, the nation of Israel. And out of that covenant people, after 400 years in Egypt, he redeemed them. And so one of the powerful works of God are his mighty miracles in Egypt and the great night of the Passover in which God slew all the, the firstborn of the, of the Egyptians. And think of that great Exodus event, the parting of the Red Sea. These are things that we need to remember and teach our children. Bogus, nonsense, false teachers and, and liberal scholars try to say that didn't happen it wasn't, a, it wasn't a sea, it was, it was really a reed sea and they just waded across. And I said, no, the Bible says that God parted the sea and he drowned the Egyptians. You don't drown people in a six-inch mud puddle. And then, of course, there's the manna in the wilderness. This wonderful display of God's power by feeding and preserving over a million people in a desert for 40 years. And then as they came out of the desert, tell of his wonderful works. Tell of how he parted the Jordan River. Tell of how the priests had to wade in the water. Sing and praise God for the battle of Jericho when the walls came tumbling down. And then think about these prophecies of the coming of the Messiah who would be born of a virgin, who would be crucified and by the greatest act of power ever displayed on planet earth, God raised his son Jesus from the dead, 
Paul said in Ephesians 1, Oh, it is my prayer that you would know the great power toward all of us who believe that was evidence when God raised his son from the dead. That's why the Bible speaks of the power of God's resurrection. Think of his powerful work that's coming in the future when the Bible says the entire universe will melt with an intense heat, 2 Peter 3, and God will bring forth a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. What a joy and a privilege it is to talk about God's great works of power. But third, not only should we talk about his works of power, not only should we teach our kids his works of power, but we should actually sing and shout about his works of power. You're like, whoa, pastor, whoa, now you're, now you're, 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 you're going too far. Really? Look at verse 7. They shall eagerly utter, that means spring forth, the memories of your abundant goodness. Now, now look what it says here in verse 4. They will shout joyfully of your righteousness. Shout joyfully. Do, do, we, even, do we even do that? Are you allowed to do that in religion? Oh, we do that in sports. No problem. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But are we allowed to do that with God? As a matter of fact, not only are we allowed to do that, but ask yourself, if I never do that, but I do that with sports, where's the disconnect? The other thing that struck me is that some Bibles actually, for the word translated, shout joyfully in verse 7, actually translate it sing. And so I, I looked up and this, this Hebrew word often is used of, of shouting, but sometimes it is used in association with singing. You know, it, it, it actually struck me when people say, oh, you know, shouting, come on. What are you, like one of those crazy people that jumps around with snakes? No, but you know what? We do it at a football game. And you know where else we do it? At a wedding. Makes me want to shout a little bit softer now. So it's not that crazy to sing and shout. But what's sad is how rarely we sing and shout about God's great power. So as we wind down this second section, as David just bursts forth, God, you're so great. I want to tell others about your power. We're going to keep uttering it like, like springs of water. We're going to declare your wondrous works. The world's going to know what a great God you are. It made me think, do we have any songs like this? And then I remembered, you know, we do. Something as simple as, it only takes a spark. Don't forget that line. I'll shout it from the mountaintops. I want the world to know. Or, or how about shout to the north and the south, sing to the east and the west. So, so let this psalm remind us that as believers that we can shout and sing and praise God for what he's done. And if you don't feel like it and your heart is, is just not into it, ask God to, to stir you through the Holy Spirit. And then we can sing about his, his power. I sing the mighty power of God. We teach it to our children. My God is so big, so strong and so mighty. There's nothing my God cannot do. The mountains are his. The rivers are his. The stars are his handiwork too. My God is so big, so strong and so mighty. There's nothing my God cannot do. 
Our God is an awesome God. Think about that song, how it goes back to creation. It talks about Sodom and Gomorrah and the, and the great reigning of fire, another powerful act of God. Worshiping and praising God for his creation. This week, Tammy and I were walking through Tyler Park and I was listening to the birds and looking around and I thought of that great hymn, um, How Great Thou Art. When through the woods and forest glades I wander and hear the birds sing sweetly in the trees. When I look down from lofty mountain grandeur and hear the brook and, and feel the gentle breeze, then sings my soul, my Savior God to thee, how great thou art, how great thou art. But you know, it's really interesting, the last phrase in verse seven, because when it says what they're shouting joyfully about, it's quite staggering. Are they shouting joyfully about creation? Are they shouting joyfully about the Red Sea? Are they shouting joyfully about the Battle of Jericho? No, they're actually shouting and singing about God's righteousness? Who does that? As Charles Spurgeon said, unbelievers don't sing about God's righteousness. They don't get excited about the fact that one day God is going to judge them for their sins and he's going to satisfy his righteousness as a judge by making them pay the penalty of their sins. Unbelievers don't sing of the righteousness of God. That's kept for us as believers. Because we understand that the righteousness of God is not something that should terrify us, but the righteousness of God should lead us to sing about the gospel. You see, maybe you, 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 you've never heard or, or forget that the phrase, the righteousness of God, used to terrify Martin Luther. You see, Martin Luther, as, as a Catholic priest, as he was charged with teaching the book of Romans, he would read that phrase, the righteousness of God. The wrath of God is revealed against the unrighteousness of man. And he began to hate God because he was so fearful of God's righteousness and his wrath. But when God opened his eyes and he understood the gospel, he realized that the gospel is this beautiful wedding of God's wrath and righteousness which are satisfied in the cross. And so as Christians, we sing of God's righteousness because we understand that when Jesus died on the cross, that satisfied God's righteousness. And so God can pardon me. He doesn't just look at me and say, oh, don't worry about it, Tom. You're forgiven. The Bible says in in Romans chapter 3, God put Jesus on the cross as a propitiation to satisfy his wrath publicly so that he could be righteous and still justify us. And so we sing the gospel, which leads us to the third point here. The third point found in verses 8 through 10, as we learn more about praise, is that the pinnacle of our praise, the primacy of our praise, the most important thing that we praise God for is the gospel. Look at the transition. David's thinking about God's works of power in creation. But now he turns to redemption. He says, the Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and great in loving kindness. The Lord is, is good to all and his mercies are over all of his works. All your works shall give thanks to you, Lord. And look here. 
and your godly ones shall bless you. One of the things that's kind of interesting about this whole idea of praising God for his power in creation and praising God for redemption is this exactly what you'll find in Revelation 4 and 5. As John the Apostle has a vision of the heavenly worship takes place. In chapter 4, you see the saints and angels bowing down and praising God for his power in creation. Worthy are you, O Lord, because you created all things. But in chapter 5, they're praising God for his redemption. Worthy is the lamb that was slain. And so here we have this theme again. And as Christians, you know that our very core and our mission is to advance the gospel. We're a gospel-centered people that focus on the person and work of the Lord Jesus. Let's take a note of just a couple things. Number one, as we think about the, the primacy or pinnacle of our praise being the gospel, as we praise God and celebrate the gospel, we celebrate his merciful grace. Look at verse eight. The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and great in loving kindness. The word loving kindness, the Hebrew word chesed, is, is, is the Old Testament equivalent to grace. It's his covenant faithfulness. It's this undeserved goodness and mercy that God shows his children. And so as Christians, we should regularly praise God for his mercy in the gospel. Ephesians 2 says, remember that you were walking in this world, dead in your sins, energized by Satan, and children deserving God's wrath. That's what we deserve. I need to remember that I deserve to go to hell. But then Paul says this, but God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our sins, made us alive together with Christ. We celebrate God's mercy in the gospel. But you know, even unbelievers, we need to teach unbelievers to celebrate God's common grace. Look at verse nine. The Lord is good to all. He's good to all. Not just to believers. He's good to all. His mercies are over all his works. Theologians call this God's common grace. In other words, God puts his blessings not just on believers, but unbelievers. Jesus said it this way. He said, he sends his rain on the just and on the unjust. God doesn't only give rain to Christian farmers. He's good to all. He's good to nature. He's good to animals. And he's good to mankind. But this common grace is to be distinguished from his special grace that he gives to his children. You know, it's funny. I had an example of this this week. I've been playing tennis uh, recently with a, a Jewish man. He's a really good guy. I really like him. But the other day, he asked me to play tennis. I said, it's going to rain today. And he texted me back and he said, well, well, you're a man of God. Why don't you just pray about it? And I didn't answer him. And a few hours later, he texted me back when it started to rain. He said, see, your prayers didn't work. They were ineffectual. And I wrote back to him and I said, no, that's where you failed. I didn't pray for it not to rain. You see, God is good to all of us. And so let's just remember, the Lord is good. And yet, notice how David loops right around to, to God's people. 
even though he's good to all, he says, your godly ones shall bless you. Verse 10, your godly ones shall bless you. That word is your saints, your holy ones. And so as a Christian, I can thank God. Lord, thank you for food and clothing and blessings, just part of being in this world. But as a Christian, I bless God for his particular grace, his unconditional electing grace in the gospel. Not just that God sent his son to save sinners, but that God chose me and he brought me to himself. All of God's chosen people will bless and praise his name. And so we learn that we should make this primary. We should praise God every day for the gospel. Lord, thank you that Jesus spared me from hell. Thank you that you chose me for salvation. And thank you that you're good to all of mankind, to the just and the unjust. Well, that moves us to our fourth point here. And here we're learning that another part of our praise is about God's kingdom. Another part of our praise is about God's kingdom. Remember in verse one, he said, I will praise you, O God, my king. You see, one of the things that we learn from this passage is exactly what Jesus taught us in the Lord's Prayer, that God's people should be thinking about God's kingdom. Don't forget, God's people should be thinking about God's kingdom. For example, Lord's Prayer. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. We're asking God that he will return to this earth and establish his kingdom. But don't forget, the end of the Lord's Prayer, for yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory. So what does David tell us about praising God for his kingdom? Well, note with me in verse 11, they shall speak, the saints shall speak of the glory of your kingdom, that glorious kingdom right now that's in heaven that's coming to earth. They will speak about it to make known to the sons of men your mighty acts and the glory of the majesty of your kingdom. We declare to them that Jesus, God's son, came to earth and conquered Satan and was raised from the dead, but he's coming again. And the apostle Paul actually declared gospel preaching in the following phrase. He said to the Ephesians in Acts 20, he said, I went house to house preaching the kingdom to you. And so as Christians, we should think about God's kingdom. We should remember that whatever we're going through right now, don't forget that there's a powerful, glorious, everlasting kingdom that's coming to this earth. But finally, the last thing we learn about praise is that we should praise the Lord who picks us up, fills us up, holds us up, and takes us up. Oh, I love this. First of all, we should praise the Lord who picks us up. Verse 17. The Lord is righteous in all of his ways and kind in all of his deeds. Oh, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Verse 14, I, I lost my place. So, so verses 14 through 20, this last point. We should praise God who picks us up, fills us up, holds us up, and takes us up. Look at verse 14. The Lord sustains all who fall and he raises up all who are bowed down. What, what does that mean? Well, God picks us up. Notice that he's going to say in this passage, he'll go on to say in verse 19, the Lord hears the cry and saves them. 
Every one of us as a child of God, we stumble, we fall, we struggle. But our God always picks us up. The righteous fall seven times, but the Lord picks them up, we learn from Proverbs. And so maybe you feel like you've stumbled. Maybe you're, you're bowed down with fear and worry and care. Remember, our God always picks us up. And so praise the Lord for that. But not only does he pick us up, but he also fills us up. Let's read 15 down to verse 17. He says, the eyes of all look to you and you give them their food in due time. You open your hand and satisfy the desire of everything, every living thing. The Lord is righteous in all his ways. He's kind in all his deeds. The Lord is near to all who call upon him. He picks us up to all who call upon him. Look, look at this. He will fulfill the desire of those who fear him. He will hear their cry and save them. So God picks us up by hearing our cry, by raising us up, but he also fills us up. Look at these words. He satisfies us. Verse 16. On a human level, most of us have a good meal to eat. Each day, like baby birds, we should remember that we're not, we're not just unthinking animals who just rush upon our food, but like baby birds, we look up and we open our mouths and here comes God. The Lord gives us our food. My dog, I don't like uh, when dogs beg. And so a dog will try to sniff your hand and, and, you, and you hold that food tightly. But God's not like that with his children. He opens his hand and he provides. He's a good God. Benjamin teaches us to sing. You're a good, good father. That's who you are. And I'm loved by you. That's who I am. What a wonderful idea that God fills us up. But not just with, with food, but he fills our souls. You see, as Christians, when he says he will, he will fulfill the desire of those who fear him, see, all of us have a longing inside of us that there's nothing on the horizontal plane that can fill it. Sex isn't going to fill it. Money isn't going to fill it. Fame isn't going to fill it. Power isn't going to fill it. Fun isn't going to fill it. There's nothing in this world. Even the great rock and roll singers say, I can't get no satisfaction. But if you're a Christian, Jesus said, if any man's thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Isaiah said, Ho, everyone that thirsteth, come to the water. Come and, and drink freely. And what a joy that God fills us up with himself and he satisfies us. And we learn to find our contentment, not in our stuff, but in our Savior. And that's a struggle. We haven't always got that down. Sometimes we, we, we go after those idols, those cheap substitutes, but then we're reminded nothing in this world can satisfy. And so I come back to God. I say, fill me up. Oh God, fill me up. And then third, God holds us up. I love this. And I love how many of these verses remind us of the songs that Benjamin's teaching us. Look with me in verse 20. The Lord keeps all who love him. The Lord keeps all who love him. What is he talking about here? God keeps, he preserves us. He holds me up. 
He sustains me. The only reason that I'm still a Christian after making a profession back in 1979 is not because I'm a good Christian. It's because he that began a good work in me will perform it until the day of Christ. Never forget this, Christian. Jesus Christ is holding on to you. Whoever told you that the Christian life is like a a relay race and Jesus paid for your past and now he gave you the baton and you better not do something stupid. If you commit suicide or if you blaspheme, you're going to lose your salvation. That's ridiculous. A Christian can't lose their salvation. God calls and keeps his own. Everyone who he justifies, he glorifies. And so think about that as Benjamin teaches us to sing, he will hold me fast. By the way, go to Cairn's website and and you'll find that there's a special video that, that Benjamin made of the song, He Will Hold Me Fast. I don't know if it's a video or audio, but over 3,000 people have listened to it. Not, not because of Benjamin, because it's a great song. Jesus will hold me fast. For my Savior loves me so, he will hold me fast. He picks me up, he fills me up, he holds me up. And ultimately, I said, he'll lift me up. It says, the Lord keeps those who love him. He saves us. You see, there's coming a day, and it might be soon when Jesus comes back. Don't miss this. If you're still exploring Christianity, this is what you have to look forward to if you won't come to Jesus. It says, but all the wicked he will destroy. It's up to you. Are you going to come to God in repentance and say, Lord, save me? And if you do, the Bible says the Lord himself will come from heaven, and all of us, dead or alive, will be caught up, will be taken up. So this God loves you who gave his son to die for you, but you have to repent and come to him. If you've done that, I'd love to hear from you. T. Allen at Cairn, C-A-I-R-N dot E-D-U. Email me and tell me how you've given your life to the Lord Jesus Christ. And then David loops around and he says, let me just say it once more. Let me just do it again before I close. We learn that we should praise God daily forever. We should praise him for his works of power and teach it to our kids. The pinnacle of our praise is the gospel. Another part of our praise is his kingdom. And we can praise God who lifts us up, holds us up, cheers us up, and ultimately he's going to take us up. But notice the final verse. My mouth, verse 21, will speak the praise of the Lord and all flesh will bless his holy name forever. In just a moment, Benjamin's going to come and he's going to lead us in a song, Oh, Taste and See, from Psalm 34. And the chorus goes like this. Psalm 34, 3. Magnify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name together. If you're a Christian, join with us. Even in the coronavirus, Let's praise our great God and our Savior Jesus Christ knowing that God is good all the time and join with us and invite your friends to join us and follow Christ and magnify the Lord together even in the midst of a tragic time. God bless you and I'll look forward to seeing you all next week.